Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to the Sage Sayers. I'm your show host, Debbie Gardner McCullough, DG McCullough. I'm a narrative coach, a communications coach, and a mental fitness coach from New Zealand based in the fine state of Wisconsin. In each episode, the Sage Sayers unpacks communications, tips, and strategies, and we interview interesting individuals from all around the world who found the gift, the opportunity, and even some knowledge in life's inevitable challenges. My guest today is James Woodruff. He's a manager with the Federal Aviation Administration, where he manages the Kansas City District airspace. That's half of Oklahoma, all of Kansas, all of Missouri, and then half of Illinois. He and his team of six frontline managers, each with 14 employees, take care of all the equipment to help keep that airspace safe. James started in Cleveland, Ohio as a technician in 1996 when working with the FAA before entering management. And in two weeks, he starts a new role training FAA new managers in leadership. I've brought James to my show today because he has some interesting stories to tell and because his leadership lessons that he can impart on others came to him in an intriguing way through managing a large group of servers and buses at a country club where he served in his youth. James, welcome to the Sage Sayers. Thank you. It's really nice to have you here on the eve of the 4th of July. And James, I love to start any conversation with just a little background info. So would you tell my listeners, please, all of whom are very intriguing people, people who are on the move, wondering about career moves, but also just wanting to be excellent communicators. Tell us about your work with the FAA and what you love most about it. We work to make sure that all the equipment that the pilots use and that the air traffic controllers use is functioning properly so it's safe for people to fly from point A to point B. So... That's basically what we do. That's the radars, navigation equipment, the radios, you name it. And then what I enjoy most about it is, one, just making sure it's safe for people to fly. But uh, two, the people I work with are great. They're all very professional and fun to work with. I love hearing that. You're already a minority, James, because not many people are enjoying their jobs right now. So nice to hear that you enjoy your work. You're smiling when you speak of it and you like the folks you work with. I wondered when you chose the FAA over other groups to start working for, what helped you, what made it stand out to you? Why the FAA? It's the people. We have good people, a lot of ex-military people, so we have a lot in common. Most of us got our training through the Navy, Air Force, Army, or Marines, which I guess is appropriate on the day for the 4th of July, but uh, those people are just good to work with, and we know that what we do is important for the general public. And it's a good feeling of accomplishment to keep people safe. Yeah, you've got a really nice unified goal there of keeping people safe. And I know from previous conversations, you've had a really interesting career, James. You taught high school leading up to the FAA. You served in the Navy, and thank you for serving for us, by the way. I wondered, 
starting with the Navy. What about working for the Navy helped prepare you for the work that you do today? I went in the Navy in 1982, and I spent the almost the first year and a half just in training with electronics, which you could go two paths. One, I took the radar path, not thinking how limited the jobs may be out in the private sector when I got out of the Navy. And uh, really, the only radars that are available in the country to work on that are civilian is with the FAA. So that really worked out good. But uh, did eight years in the Navy the last yeah, so I spent my first five years uh, all over the world fixing the radar on a ship and a different radar. Well, we did three of them on there. And then uh, the last three years in the Navy were spent as an instructor teaching newer Navy people how to work on radar and electronics. So lots of electronics, I'm trying to emulate your accent. And my New Zealand one says electronics, but... So lots of technical training. I wondered through the lens of leadership and communications, what did the Navy teach you? I know, for instance, teaching at corporate communications at Keenan Flagler Business School, I was there when the Navy came out with a big mission to remove the jargon from the language. It might have been after you served there, but there was a real learning from the Navy at that time when I taught that class to put bottom line on top, for instance, get to your message quick. Remove jargon, use exclamation marks sparingly, that kind of thing. What would you say when you went through the Navy in the 80s? It taught you about effective communications. When I was on my ship, I had, uh, I wasn't on there very long and I became the work center supervisor. So I ended up with two or three technicians working for me. So it was important to be able to communicate to them what work we needed to do, but also to communicate upward towards the officer in charge of our unit, what was going on. And not so much a lot of written communications in the Navy, it was mostly verbal, but we would have to also do some written performance reviews on the people that were under you. So we had that written communication, but uh, the Navy's so diverse we have people from the Philippines and, you know, all parts of the United States that uh, he was talking about jargon. It was interesting to get all those bits and pieces of uh, American flavor, you know, the difference between a lollipop and a sucker, uh, soda and pop, you know, just a lot of different stuff. And so you really get a good mix of communication styles and accents that you dealt with every day. You know, folks from the inner city, people from remote countries. So communications has always had to be very clear because someone's life could depend on it in a battle situation. So the jargon of Navy had its own second language. I hope they don't get rid of that. I don't know. What did you like about that second language? Yeah, you still hear it sometimes, like scuttlebutt and skylarking. Ooh, what does scuttlebutt mean? Scuttlebutt came about, it was, it's all Navy tradition, and so that would be sitting around shooting a breeze around a water water cooler or the water fountain. You know, the latest rumors would be scuttlebutt. All kids with their walls, you know, the deck being a floor, restrooms were called the head. You know, that kind of stuff that's just tradition. So it's that heritage piece that you're responding to. 
Yeah. And it's kind of like, I think, tradition, but also it's like an in-house language. I'm sure it builds a special kind of camaraderie and commonality. Yeah, especially when you run into somebody today that was prior service Navy or Marines, mm-hmm. typically same jargon as the Navy. So, and then the FAA's got its own second. We tell people you're going to be bilingual by your second year in FAA because of all the acronyms that are used. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is. I've never seen so many, and they've got some acronyms like ASR that mean three different things. Wow. Three different groups of people within the agency. So, yeah, the communications is very critical. We spoke too about in previous conversations about your high school career where you taught. I think you taught something technical, right? Something that you could flow over from your Navy years. What did you teach? And then what about being a high school teacher helped prepare you to be a manager and someone worthy of hosting a leadership class in the next two weeks. Teaching high school, I had uh, juniors and seniors, and it was a public school, so again, fairly diverse group of people there. And I taught a two-year program, so I had juniors all morning, and I had seniors who I had the previous year. I had them in the afternoon, so uh, got pretty close to these kids, you know, mm-hmm. as far as spending a lot of time with them. And uh, it was, again, it was just, you had to be really effective and clear with your communication with them. And basically you're the leader of them while they're in the classroom. I mean, you're the teacher, you're, so you get that leadership uh, experience with the younger crowd, which mm-hmm. has proved beneficial because now there's a lot more people younger than me than there were then. What did you learn about that, James? Because I, too, as a fellow professor, taught all kinds of ages, some my dad's age, some much younger than me, 20 years younger than me, some 10 years younger than me, all ages. What did you learn about yourself and effective communications from having such youthful audiences? You have to keep up on their latest Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do. Terms that change, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes you'll use something from your youth that is so far removed from their vocabulary that you have to rephrase. Mm-hmm. And the younger people now, they don't like to talk. They would rather text. That's true, too. Tell me more. How do you manage that when you're in front of them trying to teach them something? I'm not a fast texture and I don't know if it's my phone or not but uh, it's it's not very cooperative at times either so I get very frustrated with it and I, I have a hard time if the word is misspelled you know I, I guess that's just from my grammar teacher when I was in high school but you know you try to do it right but they would rather just send kind of encrypted text messages that sometimes I understand them sometimes I don't and when I don't I'll just text them a message call me Mm-hmm. Then we'll have a, a conversation, which they will usually uh, warm up to once you start talking to them. But I just don't think they like to talk. They would rather text, and it seems so much like a lot more work. And I'll just tell them, I said, I can talk faster than I can text. When you're in that teacher role, though, 
in that leadership consulting role. How do you engage with an audience, young or same age as you or me? How do you engage with a disengaged audience who'd prefer to text than communicate? Because an effective, to teach effectively, I think we have to engage too. Would you agree? And if so, how do you engage with an audience who's reticent? They just don't really want to speak. Uh, I just tell turn the phones off. Yeah, there you go. Have some ground rules. Mm -hmm. I agree. Force them into a verbal discussion. And how do you do that? How did you like start to pepper them with questions, cold call? Yeah, once you get them going, they will open up. I think so too. They know how to talk. They just don't prefer it. That's true too. When I trained as part of my training to become a coach three and a half years ago now, I did take a fantastic course with coach Sean Pruis. She was fantastic. And one of the best practices she taught us was to set the ground rules at the front end of any group coaching course. You want to promise confidentiality and really mean that and stipulate what that confidentiality needs to look and sound like. You build a contract with them together as a group on how the course is going to go forward, how the group coaching is going to go forward. But she also stipulates at the front end to any group that she coaches that there will be no wallflowers here. If you're coming to me to learn how to build morale, boost morale, or build trust in your work teams, then there are no wallflowers. We're all participating. She also had a firm rule that cameras on, unless within reason, and if you need to adjust your needs or leave the room, by all means, but otherwise cameras on. And I'm trying to what else she did. It wasn't so much how to ensure everyone was collaborating and working. It was more the fact that she made it a ground rule and she made it in service of the whole group. What do you think of that tactic? If we're doing Zoom meetings, we've been some instructional or educational or whatever uh, training, we do require the cameras on so that we know that people are engaged. And sometimes we'll have a couple of instructors, one who's actually doing the instruction, and the other one is monitoring the people. Mm-hmm. Maybe peppering them with questions on the chat. Mm-hmm. And that keeps them pretty engaged. But you can only take so much of that online instruction with a Zoom meeting. Maybe we try, I know with the FAA, we try to limit it to four to six hours. Yeah, I think that's another good idea. Keep it short and manageable versus overwhelming yeah, your poor yeah. Yeah. Frequent breaks is great. Yeah. So that's kind of how we do it here. I like to hear that. When I taught my last course at Keenan Flagler, they were hour and a half lessons and I gave everyone a break at the halfway mark. Everyone seemed to really appreciate it. And I didn't realize that until one week I forgot. My students reminded me. Yeah. So everyone appreciates that. Stretching, getting up, bio break, hugging your kids, yep. good night, whatever. I know that when we first started talking, James, you told me that the through the lens of this upcoming trainer role, that your leadership training role, some of the best leadership lessons and communication lessons came to you from a job you had in your youth, working at a country club where you were manager of a group of buses and servers. Tell us more. What did you learn about communications and leadership through this role? To this day, that's still the coolest job I ever had. How cool. What did you love? 
It was fun. It was not like going to work at all. So I was 16 when I, I just bought a car and I uh, got the job the next day to pay for the car. Where were and you? So you were in Ohio or in Kansas? It was in Ohio. It was in Ohio. Ohio. Canton, Ohio. And we, this country club was, it was big. So uh, I have, you know, obviously a whole lot of rich people. Um, it was also all kinds of celebrities came through there. No way. So it was a bit of a fancy place. Yeah, it was pretty big. I mean, not a lot of people, and I just took it all for granted at the time. But, I mean, I danced with Carly Simon and Barbara Edens on the same night. No Uh, way. Met Chuck Norris. I met every football, NFL football Hall of Fame inductee for three straight years because they had their after party at the country club where I worked. So, yeah, it it was cool that way. But, um... Because I worked my way up to where I was basically in charge of the busboys and, and the waitresses, then I would, again, the communication was critical to make sure that everybody understood what they were supposed to do that night. Um, you know, especially when, like, a newer busboy or a newer waitress, you would have to make sure they knew how to take orders at a table and keep it organized to make sure they got it right the first time. So, you know, little things that you don't consider, you just really, and you had to be very concise or get to be a real good listener with customers because they were the paying customers. So that really helped your listening skills. And when you went to a table to get all the orders and stuff, you better get it right. So you had to listen very well. And if you didn't get something right, you would ask the question, you know, make how did you want that cooked? You know, what do you want for a side and all that kind of stuff. So it was a great experience to become a good active listener. And, and as part of that, remembering back, repeating back what it is that you heard. You're right. And then you had repeated back in the kitchen to the chef. Yeah. Nice practice bottom lining too. It's got to be short, got to be brief to the point. Yep. Yep. Because everything was rush, rush, rush. So Right. Yeah. And I wonder if part of that act of listening, too, is paying attention to how they said the words. So, for instance, if there was a medium well kind of comment to the steak question and if they said it with a bit of sternness, you know, underlying. (laughs) She said medium well. (laughs) Don't get it wrong. (laughs) And you had to make sure you were always friendly. That's true, too. Building trust and rapport. That's true. Showing with there carried over to the Navy, carried over to teaching, you know, and also to the job I have now. It just makes communication very easy for me. What about time management? So part of making communication easy is managing our time, right? What did you learn about time management when it comes to from from that management job at the country club? Um you learn to work very efficiently. So, I mean, you didn't want to make two trips to the same table. Yeah, so that's right. Water and coffee, you made sure you had both plus anything else that you needed to take over there. So everything was maximum efficiency. You didn't walk anywhere empty-handed. Mm-hmm. You were always thinking, you know, what all can I get on the way out and on the way back into the kitchen, you know, so... Learn to work efficiently and under a lot of pressure if you were really, really busy. Beautiful. 
James, I know you're going into a new role in two weeks and you're going to be tasked with training new frontline managers to be effective communicators and leaders. What challenges, not just with your team, but just in general, what challenges do you think today's new managers face as far as communicating goes? Well, they're going to have to learn to be more verbal. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to learn to make sure that their message is very clear. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have to make sure they get the feedback to make sure the message was received. And they'll just have to get used to a different level of communication that they didn't have as a technician where most of our managers come from. Right. And from the field, I'm hearing there's a lot of discomfort with just talking. So one of my thought leadership piece last week was small talk and the struggles that many communicators are having with small talk. And I shared with my readers and listeners how I learned small talk as a skill. And it was really through backpacking through Asia in my youth and my 20s. And I did a lot of that solo and moving a lot. I've moved and relocated so many times. Even by the time I was age 10, I'd moved 10 times. So I do think moving and starting over increases our confidence with small talk because you're needing to connect to build a new community each time. But what about you? What are your tips or offerings to those who struggle just with the simple small talk that many of us once took for granted? I think people need to just get out there and do it. They need to find something in common with Mm -hmm. whomever they're talking to, whether they're talking sports, the weather, you know, maybe not politics or religion so much, but there's something, any two people have something they can connect on. That's true. And once you find that, then you can start talking. And then once people get comfortable and they start building a relationship, they'll talk as much true. easier. That's true. Well, thank you so much, James. I wish you all the best with your new training role. I think your students are going to love Working with you, anything else to air or share today? No, no, just the people need to be effective communicators. And as far as leadership goes, take care of your people and they'll take care of you. That's so true, right? Take care of your people and they'll take care of you. Well, thank you so much, James. It was a pleasure connecting with you today. Thank you. And happy 4th for tomorrow. Absolutely. You've been listening to DG McCullough with The Sage Sayers, a podcast on business communications and mental fitness, finding the sage approach to life's challenges. If you'd like to coach and train with me on any communication or life challenge, visit my website, hangingrockcoaching.com or find me on LinkedIn with the hashtag bravecommunicators. Both links you'll find within the show notes. I want to thank my producer, Doton, for his elegant edits, making these episodes beautiful in ways far beyond my skills. You can find Doton on Fiverr under Titan32. And thank you to my coaches all over the globe who spark creative ideas for each episode. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.